Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. On a recent trip to the Hudson Valley to see our daughter, we, our son and his fiance drove up from Richmond, and we all went camping in the Catskills. Now, as camping trips go, this was a fairly uneventful and relatively comfortable one. We didn't have to set up or break down the tent in the rain that blew in and back out that night. And we were secretly glad, Ardell and I were, that Alden and Hannah's nervous dog, Romeo, chose their heads to lie down upon when the thunder rolled in that night. A few days before our trip, two guys known as the Dumb Dads on Instagram held a faux press conference about family camping. Near the end of it, dad number two is asked by a reporter, what's your focus now? To which he replies, you know, after living in the dirt for three days, everybody just kind of smells like bug spray and smoke. We had a bunch of wet food because our cooler stinks. Nothing fits in the container, you brought it in, so we're just looking forward to getting home to some screen time and showers. The reporter follows up, will you go camping again this summer? To which he says, oh sure, we love camping. (laughs) Camping's a curious activity, isn't it? A completely mystifying one to some people. It's a chosen form of discomfort that often involves gear that's more expensive than what we use in our cushier indoor lives. But whether you like to camp, or jog, or garden, or bake bread, or honestly just enter into any but the most superficial of human relationships, there's probably going to be an element of discomfort, possibly even pain and anxiety involved. Because such is life for creatures like us in a world like this one, it seems. Maybe camping is just one way to practice acceptance that there's just no perfectly comfortable way to be alive. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down. Did anybody else notice that Jacob really raises the bar for roughing it as he turns in for the night? A night in which he will have one of the most famous and beautiful dreams as well. If we know the story of this particular dreamer, we might expect him to have not just an uncomfortable sleep on that rock, but an anxious dream as his guilty subconscious works out the mess he's made of things. You see, Jacob wasn't just out to commune with nature that night. He was on the lamb because he'd swindled his brother, his older brother Esau, of his birthright. In a moment of weakness, you might remember, Esau had traded it for a bowl of stew, but It took an elaborate scheme to deceive their blind old father Isaac for Jacob to finally secure the blessing for good. And Esau was so angry he swore to kill his brother. So Jacob takes his stolen blessing and he runs. This is the context for Jacob's dream. And even if he cares nothing for severing his relationship with his brother, was the blessing that Isaac's lineage would continue through Jacob, really worth having to live out the rest of his days, sleeping with one eye open 
looking over his shoulder, lest his brother catch up to him and take his revenge. I don't think we need to psychoanalyze Jacob's dream to assume that there really is plenty of anxiety and discomfort present in the scene, even if the dream itself seems so much more beautiful than what this scoundrel deserves. Perhaps the fact that he spent the night with his head on a rock is the story's reminder to us that even Jacob, who seems to have a conscience of stone, has more going on in his life than blessings and beautiful visions. And some part of him knows it, even if he doesn't quite know how to live differently from the grasping and conniving he's been up to since he came into this world clutching his twin brother's heel. Our stories are complicated, aren't they? Other people's stories are complicated, aren't they? Sometimes it seems like people who deserve to be miserable for all the pain they've caused sleep like milk-drunk babies while earnest do-gooders toss and turn for everything else they might have done or said to make the world a little better, but didn't. For some reason, it helped me as I heard this story for the umpteenth time to have been reading a Benedictine monk named David Stendhal Rast, who insists that anxiety is actually something no one gets to avoid in this life, not even the Jacobs of the world. Anxiety, he says, is simply a symptom of being alive. What to do with it is what makes the difference. If you've only heard anxiety referred to as a disorder that you need to get over, or if you've ever been overwhelmed by worry and anxious thoughts, it may sound like terrible news that anxiety comes just from waking up in this world as a limited and imperfect human being. But maybe it's not, if we understand anxiety in a certain way at least. The root of the word anxious actually means tight or constricted. David Stendhal Rast actually believes the basic human anxiety goes all the way back to the experience of birth. You don't have to buy that idea to accept that if I'm less than all-powerful and there's something actually at stake in my life, some form of anxiety will be present. I may not be able to do what's required. All the presence of anxiety really means is that there's some element of risk present to my life, which of course there always is. Brother David quotes Suzuki Roshi, who compares anxiety to the wind in your face when you ride a bicycle. It's actually evidence that you're moving, that you're alive. And he also says that if your courage is just a nose ahead of your anxiety, you can overcome it maybe even transform it. You don't need infinite or perfect courage. You don't need to be fearless. You just need enough courage to keep this very natural anxiety from turning into fear. Because fear really can be destructive when it's the primary force that drives our lives, can't it? So this interplay between anxiety and courage and fear, at least as David Stendhal Rast uses these terms, this made even more sense to me when I turned things around and considered my life with other people. We often think courage is something that we have to marshal within ourselves, all by ourselves. But the word courage is hidden in plain view within the word encourage, isn't it? 
to encourage is actually to instill a little courage in somebody else. So I think a question worth asking is whether I influence the lives around me by instilling courage in them or by instilling fear. Using fear to control or influence people is as old as the Bible and as current as the Sunday paper today. It works if power and influence are all that we're after. But if I'm honest, when I stoop to using fear to gain some advantage over somebody else, I'm probably acting out of some unresolved fear in my own life. We all probably know what it feels like to be fearful of somebody else. And unfortunately, we probably also know what it's like to feel a little bit more powerful because we've made somebody else a little more afraid. But I'll bet we've also known people who make us feel a little more at home in our own skin when we're around them. People who make us feel seen and affirmed for who we actually are, not for the person they need us to be or the one we wish we were. These encounters and friendships, I think, are encouragements in the deepest sense of that word. They give us courage to go forward. And since theirs is a truthful kind of seeing, it doesn't deny our imperfections and limitations, but the encouraging person doesn't use them to put us in our place. Rather, they put our ordinary human anxiety in its place, providing us with just enough courage to make us empathetic, curious, kind, rather than frightened, defensive, or even cruel. It could even be that when we've received just enough courage or encouragement to hold it, our anxiety itself can be transformed into a source of connection, maybe even an energy to make this world a little less fear-driven place. Look back at Jacob's story again. From the moment of his birth, Jacob doesn't instill courage in other people. His method is to instill fear and uncertainty about what this trickster might be up to next, right? you got to keep your guard up around this one if you don't want to be his next mark, even if you're his brother or his dad. But now here he is, alone in the wilderness, sleeping with his head on a stone, but almost certainly with that one eye open, lest the brother he's cheated come charging over the next hill with vengeance in his eyes. This is what winning looks like when fear directs and consumes our lives, isn't it? But in the midst of Jacob's self-destructive victory, Esau does not arrive. God does. And God does not come to strike fear in Jacob's heart. God will, in fact, go ahead and bless the world through the offspring of this Jacob, whose name a little later in the story, after another restless night, will become Israel. God blesses Jacob not because of who Jacob is, but because of who God is. God blesses Jacob because God is love, not fear. And love, perfect, unconditional, redeeming love, is the most powerful form of encouragement of them all. We're told that the morning after Jacob's dream, he took the very same stone he'd used for a pillow and he set it up as a pillar 
and poured oil on top of it to mark the uncomfortable place where he received this one gift in the world that he couldn't go out and get for himself. The spot where he received a measure of grace and blessing that he knew he didn't deserve. And quite possibly it marked the moment in his life when fear loosened its grip just a bit and the seed of a more courageous way to live took root. Stay tuned. The old Jacob will never go away entirely from this story. But take note of the relationships that our manipulator-in-chief will make in the chapters and the years to come. Restoration and new life really will happen when he lives out of his blessedness and his belovedness rather than by spreading fear in the people around him that they'll be the victim of his next scheme. Stay tuned. But this is a story that for all its strangeness and absurd moments of grace may still be a source of the encouragement you and I need to pedal on into the wind of our own anxieties today. And today, when fear seems to be jet fuel for this world's most powerful engines, it may not be too small a thing for the Christian community to be that place where people add courage to each other's lives through love, which we're told in so many ways in these sacred scriptures of ours, is the surest way of all to drive out fear. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.